This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello and welcome to Romaniacs. Joining me today to neither see nor seek evidence of wrongdoing, it's our crack team of international <laughs> security specialists. Naomi Smith is Chief Executive at Best of Britain. Hello, Naomi. Hello. Uh, how has your outfit reacted to the release of the Russia report on Tuesday? I mean, I think we've reacted in kind of like a similar way that sane people reacted when Donald Trump said the only reason infections had gone up in America was because they'd started to do more testing. You know, it's that same daft logic in reverse that because we didn't seek any evidence of Russian meddling in the referendum, there simply wasn't any. I was kind of like thinking about this. It's quite a nice way to live in a way. Like, how dare you suggest I might have had too much to drink on Friday night? I didn't (laughs) seek to drink too much on Friday night. Therefore, I can't have actually done so. Yeah, it's just mad, isn't it? It's like um, it's like a very unsatisfying uh, detective show in which a lazy detective uh, simply does not bother to investigate <laughs> <laughs> and just sort of sh- and just sort of shrugs. And it's like maybe he just maybe he just fell over and died that way. <laughs> Why seek the murderer? Uh, Ian Dunt is editor of Politics.co.uk. Hello, Ian. Hey, man. Um, so, uh, the day we record, uh, Labour settled the lawsuit brought by Panorama whistleblowers rather than going to court. Obviously outraging your, your, your Jeremy Corbyn's and Len McCluskey's and so on. Um, was that the, because uh, they say that they've been advised that they would, they had a good chance of uh, winning. Uh, did yes. Labour do the right thing? I mean, that's what it, I mean, lawyers often say that to clients, by the way. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but, you know, I'm sure, I'm sure they took it with suitable gravity. Do you, do you think they would, do you think, I mean, even, for example, say they, they may have had a, a, a chance. Um, was it the right thing for Labour to do to just... Or do you think the reason that they did it was not necessarily that they were convinced they would lose, but that they just wanted it out of the way and that this dragging oh, yeah, on is... Yeah, yeah, it wasn't, it wasn't a legal judgment, presumably. It was presumably like a moral and political judgment, right? I mean, the, the, which... You know, mercifully enough, for the time being in this context, they're operating in tandem, which isn't necessarily something you often see. But, you know, it was this has to stop. This has to be part of a process where we rid the party of this filth. And that involves, you know, not picking on cases like this. It also, I mean, I I don't know whether we really have seen it because, I mean, I noticed that Corbyn's statement afterwards said that the legal settlement, I think the quote is risks giving credibility to misleading 
I think he said misleading and inaccurate allegations, mm. which seemed to me to sort of repeat the libel. Um, oh no, so I've done know. a libel. I've done, I've done a libel again. <laughs> I, I, so I, I'm not entirely sure this, this will be the end of well, it. That'll be depending on, you know, the way that they, they want to proceed. Well, I mean, watching the kind of, the Corbyn Seamus Milne response, you know, reading about it in Jewish Chronicle and in the Guardian, you're just like, it's just like being reminded of some terrible time in your life, you know, when everything was very bleak and you just meet someone from that period and you're like, Oh, you don't bring up any happy memories in my head at all. And that's basically how you feel when you start reading about their response to this. Transferring over from the bunker for his first Romaniacs is former foreign office diplomat, Arthur Snell. Hello, Arthur. Hi. So in England on Friday, masks become a requirement in shops and supermarkets. You don't need to wear one now because the virus is taking a break until Friday. Um, (laughs) Uh, over here, the anti-mask cause, uh, which we discussed in the, the live show um, and said it hadn't really taken off, it has become good material for newspaper columnists, but only 13% of the public are opposed. So it's obviously not the sort of partisan dividing line that it became in the US. Do you think the anti-maskers, uh, apart from getting a column out of it, are, are on a hiding to nothing, that there just is not the, the appetite for some libertarian uh, resistance movement? Well, that's, that seems to be the case. And in general, I think, you know, the British public have taken coronavirus very seriously. And that is in marked contrast to, for example, in the US, where it does seem to be very split on partisan lines. Um, you know, the, the people that you can try to uh, sort of, um, you know, who, who will claim that this is all a big liberal conspiracy are really tiny in number. So, yeah, it, perhaps, you know, we don't always get things right, but perhaps we've got that thing right. And when you look at all the people that say they won't be going to shops, uh, if they have to wear a mask, uh, shopping has just got a lot more pleasant. There is there's no risk of uh, bumping into former UKIP MPs. Well, there's that. And also, I mean, I have to say, I'm one of these sort of misanthropic people that quite like the lockdown supermarket experience where you're this sort of lonely person with a trolley avoiding others. Um, I, 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 I regret to have to admit that, but it, it seems to me a much better way of uh, going shopping generally. <laughs> Uh, on today's uh, podcast, uh, Britain is on the world stage, the equivalent of a lonely man with a trolley. Um, so how are its first big tests as an independent country going? The Russia report has identified us as a top target for Russia, world beating, you might say. And we're going up against China on Huawei, Hong Kong and the plight of the Uyghurs. Are we going to have to do this on our own? Plus, MPs who demanded we leave the EU so that they could oversee our trade deals vote away their powers to oversee our trade deals. Because, of course, they do. And much more. (laughs) First up, the reverberations of the long-suppressed Russia report continue. What had been trailed as a bit of a damp squib turned out to be uh, quite a bombshell, with the committee claiming that the government had actively avoided looking into Russian interference, as Naomi noted, and calling for immediate action to deal with the threat. Dominic Raad swiftly announced there would be no immediate action in the form of an inquiry because the government had seen no evidence of interference because they hadn't told anyone to look for it. <laughs> It's it's all very. I do, I, I do feel I'm doing sort of like yes minister fan fiction here, but that is genuinely what's happened. And the Russian government called it Russophobia, a terrible form of bigotry that discriminates against spies, trolls, and oligarchs just for trying to live their best lives. <laughs> Arthur, the 64 million ruble question is, why did successive Tory governments turn a blind eye to this interference, do you think? 
Well, I guess it's it's actually the four million pounds question, and that's the sum of money that the uh, wealthy Russians have given to the Tory party in recent years. Um, and, uh, you know, some people seem prepared to pay for the most extraordinary things. I think it's well known that there's a woman called Lubov Chanukin who paid nearly 200 grand to play tennis with um, Boris Johnson, David Cameron, and some other top Tory. But the really odd one was when she paid, I think, 40 grand to have dinner in a bunker with Gavin Williamson. Um, Why would you pay not to? Well, right. If you had 40 grand to spare, I think you'd pay it to avoid a night in a bunker with Gavin. Um, <laughs> let's not forget that he, he famously told Russia to shut up and go away. So um, I don't know if that was included in the 40 grand or, or whether that was sort of an optional extra. So, yeah, money talks and um, four million quid goes quite a long way. Uh, now, it, it's not simply a question of uh, money because the other big thing is the Brexit question. And um, I think what we've seen uh, is a bit like in the US, you know, if if there's any risk of investigating interference and that would touch on the well-being politically of Donald Trump, then Republicans oppose it. And we're seeing it here with most, not all, but most conservatives who are saying, if, if in any way it affects our special Brexit cult, we must not we must not undermine it. This is a holy thing that we will not touch. And so I think that's that's really what's going on here. It's a, it's a form of patriotism, I suppose. Uh, on, on the money front, I mean, you're right. I mean, like 64 million ruble is actually far less than the, the 4 million sterling uh, that the Conservatives, I think it's 3.5 million that the Conservatives have received. But I think from the report, like one of the really interesting observations I found was that, you know, they, they, they honed in on the fact that, you know, it's not actually illegal to be a spy or, you know, an agent uh, against the state in, in the country. But they totally didn't pick up on the whole um fact that our electoral laws aren't fit for purpose um, and really they're meant to be like this this frontline defense against russian uh, electoral interference but but there's this simple loophole where you can for entirely legal reasons get this dual nationality uh russian british uh, and the tories made it much more easy for russian oligarchs to be fast-tracked to uk citizenship uh, if you've got enough assets and once they've got that british passport they can donate as much as they like entirely legally uh, and that's exactly uh, how, how arthur said that the wife of putin's former finance minister ends up giving millions to the governing party last year and there's nothing illegal about it whatsoever Arthur, you you might you would probably know this better than me. Do we know if the security services decided not to look for evidence because perhaps you know they were aware of the uh, of the you know the political context there, or were they explicitly instructed not to look for evidence? Well, it's an interesting uh, point there. One of the things is the, the the nature of how the different agencies operate. So MI six has a very specific framework that it only uh, does things that it's been specifically tasked to do and there's a you know there's a system for saying these are the priorities go and find out intelligence on that mi5 which of course deals with domestic uh, security has the ability to start its own investigation so it doesn't have to be asked um, but clearly they decided against uh, bothering now you can imagine that the politicians didn't ask and the cautious um, sort of Sir Humphreys over in Thames House at MI5 thought, well, let's not get into this. It, you know, it looks a bit sticky. And, and that's where it's ended up. Now, what we do know is that, you know, other people uh, on the outside were able to pass information up through the government machine, that there were concerns and, and there were issues to be worried about. And these were mostly ignored, and particularly once they 
reached the sort of top level civil servants and bridged over into politicians. Politicians just didn't want to didn't want to look at it. Um, and I think that takes takes us back to what we were saying earlier that you know for the Conservatives. Brexit has become a religion, and so anything that could undermine its validity uh, is is just is 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 not is not something that can be considered. Uh, Ian, you talked about um, the report on the bunker, but of course we've had um, its reception in Parliament today. Um, did anything interesting come out of the exchanges in Parliament? No, it was exactly what you would fucking expect. So, I mean, the the ex- uh, okay, what was impressive was the fact that Keir Starmer uh, led with it at PMQs. He really didn't have to do that because there was then going to be, you know, a, seri- a, a sort of urgent question asked by the Shadow Home Secretary immediately afterwards. So he could have easily kept away from it and focused on COVID as he had, as he has, I think, for actually every single PMQs. Um, and that would have been tempting, right? Because, you know, once you get into the Russia d- debate, it, as Boris Johnson, you know, quickly showed, you somehow get sucked into the tribalism of, of sort of the Brexit debate, which Starmer is very, very keen to stay the fuck away from. But he did it and he did exactly the right thing in doing so and still came out of it very well. What you would have expected and what you got is that Boris Johnson responded with, this is an Islingtonian Remainer attempt to sort of undo, you know, the, the referendum, blah, 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 blah. He came back on that several times. Um, that was depressingly predictable, but it was a confirmation as well that they're not going to do anything about this. It then went on to, um, to to the actual debate, to the urgent question debate, and you got the same sort of thing. I mean, you basically just got ministerial sort of statements saying, look, you know, we, we completely reject the idea that we weren't involved. We, we, this has been proved that there's no smoking gun here. You know, so you've got nothing to hold on to. This is an attempt by Remain to undo the referendum. Again, ignoring the fact that that report was not about the lack of a smoking gun. It was about the lack of anyone looking for a smoking gun. And so, of course, you get the whole ecosystem in motion, right? They get to sit there saying there's no smoking gun, specifically because they've created a situation in which no one could ever possibly find one because no one looked for it in the first place. So it confirmed pretty much all of your sort of, you know, any paranoia, nervousness you could have had about this issue was pretty much perfectly encapsulated in Boris Johnson's responses to it. Well, that does make me wonder um, that because the report does leave the Tories looking uh, weak on Russia, whatever they whatever they say, it's obvious that they're not particularly kind of um, interested uh, in protecting Britain from um, from Russian interference. So, if there was another incident like the Skripal poisoning, do you think that as Theresa May did, he, you know, he he would have even more reason to look tough to sort of counteract that impression? Does, I mean, yeah, and you know what, I, I, w- I would be surprised if he didn't do, I mean, you know, on, on any of that kind of stuff, on, on the things that happen in the real physical world, I think he will be, he will pretty much respond in the same way as Theresa May. The area that we now recognize is like demonstrably the case, the Achilles heel is in the virtual world, it's the disinformation campaign. And that is basically just a prong of the Russian attack probably, I would say, the most significant and potentially the most damaging prong of the Russian attack, that they are simply not willing to do anything about because that comes down into the culture war debate. That is seen as the kind of thing that Remainers say, as you know, by virtue of their own words. So he'll be, I think he would be perfectly strong, perfectly responsible on issues when it happens in the actual, in meat space, you know, to actual human beings. When it's happening online, when it's happening to the debate, when it's happening to democracy, in that case, I think we know now these guys are weak. They will not stand 
stand up for the country. Uh, Naomi, I got told off on Twitter uh, for saying in the first half of a tweet that I didn't believe Russian interference alone swung the referendum. Obviously, many people think it did. Um, but sort of in practical terms, is there anything to be gained uh, by Remainers, you know, trying, hoping to discredit the result four years later? We, we have left the EU. Um, but some people still seem to think that it would be possible to find evidence that a certain number of votes were shifted by Russia. Therefore, the whole thing had to be reversed. Uh, okay, I think I'm going to do a bit of like a on the one hand on the other on this one. So, so bear with me. Um, uh, you know, look, this vote leave government absolutely would never, ever want an inquiry into the referendum. Um, I'm told by someone who was there that at one of the post-Brexit victory parties, um, uh, it was attended by the then Russian ambassador, Mr. Yakovenko. And he is reported to have said that um, Brexit was, uh, you know, he considered Brexit a big triumph uh, of his time in the UK. And the report, of course, shows that we didn't even look into these questions, which we all agree seems absolutely unbelievable given all we do know about Russian interference globally um, and Putin's intentions that, you know, they really want to cause trouble and they do. And they, they, they wouldn't have interfered in Brexit out of any kind of, you know, ideological economic puritanism. They'll have done it because they want to cause power bases in London and Brussels grief. They want to disrupt the world order, shake up the status quo. And for those very same reasons, they would have backed an independent Scotland if that would cause Westminster grief or, uh, or now potentially, you know, interfered to support Labour if that would hurt number 10. Uh, and so the Russians have, you know, I, th I think that's what we need to remember. You know, they've got a very weak economy. They are only uh, world leading in the field of uh, offensive weaponry. Um, and this this Kremlin kleptocracy fret over what fate awaits them if they were to lose power and consequence. And so they're overwhelmed with this insecurity driven paranoia. You know, very much like their Soviet predecessors, they thrive best in a sort of siege mentality kind of vibe with um, skilled media manipulation and you know that's how they get strong buy-in from their citizenry and anything that weakens that outside their orbit is, is any kind of victory but we do have to get real you know regardless of the report you know Russian interference alone could not have swung the the referendum the 2016 vote was marginally won by leaving percentage terms but it was over a million people in absolute terms. And we all know that there are plenty of reasons why people voted leave. And, and many of them are older people that just simply weren't on social media to, you know, be receiving the, the air war propaganda from the bots and things like that. And it's, it's probably pretty insulting to suggest, in fact, that, that they were manipulated by bots. Brexit's happened. We're not going to turn back the clock. We're not going to change the result. And it's dangerous to talk about it for the reasons Ian said. Um, at PMQ showed us today what we all know, which is that Johnson would love us to be doing exactly that. Um, the, the Vote Leave government want us to reopen all of those arguments so they can roll out the Islingtonian Remainer tropes and all that stuff. But instead, on the Russia issue, we just have to constantly, constantly bring it back to the major questions that exist about our national security. And Keir Starmer did very well to do that today, even though Johnson kept trying to move the goalposts. So, I mean, I'm really, I'm really sort of like offended by being called an Islingtonian Remainer. I mean, I'm from Belsize, but I don't even like Islington. It's at least half a mile away. <laughs> I'm, I'm literally in Islington as we speak. So it's very, it's, ve it's very hard for me. Uh, as the Islington-based host of Romaniacs to rebut Do you feel us. seen? Do you feel seen? Yeah, every now and then I'm just like, oh, it's like me. You're talking about me, specifically. <laughs> um, 
Meanwhile, there is one autocracy to the east that Britain isn't letting off the hook. China is taking heat on three fronts. New laws to stifle dissent in Hong Kong, as we discussed recently, the oppression of Uyghur Muslims in Xinjiang province, and the ongoing Huawei drama. Um, Naomi, for the first time in my life, I had to agree with Nigel Farage. I felt weird and dirty. Um, <laughs> but because when he brought up the Uyghurs, is this one area where the government uh, and that lot uh, are doing the right thing? And is that because it has nothing to do with uh, Brexit, that, that attacking, you know, criticising China does not, it just it does not get tied up in our domestic uh, cultural mm. war. Yeah, it's a, it's a really interesting question. Um, I mean, the short answer is yes, it is doing the right thing on Huawei and Hong Kong. Um, but I think it probably does relate to Brexit insofar as um, there is actually far, far less that the UK can do now to hurt hostile powers, given that we're adrift from from the EU. You know, we wag fingers and that's important. It's, it's pretty insufficient. Um, and, and China's place in the world and its domestic agenda is so massive and so massive an issue that it's likely to be at the center of foreign affairs for the rest of our lives. Um, and, you know, it's made an ev- it, I, I think it's made so, so much more awkward by the fact that the current leader of the, the Western world is also a dreadful authoritarian with fascistic tendencies. Um, and so if you want to stand up for the Tibetans and the Falun Gong and the Uyghurs and the Hong Kongese and all other repressed groups, um, we really want to be doing that in concert with other countries and not just with the USA, many of whom were pissing off because of Brexit. Um, Arthur, this time last year, the UK was among 22 countries that issued a joint letter to the UN Human Rights Council condemning China's mass detention of the Uyghurs. But another 50 countries signed a counter letter praising, quote, China's remarkable achievements in protecting and promoting human rights through development. Uh, they included uh, North Korea, Russia, Syria, Iran, but also many African countries. Um, has China sort of stitched up the UN so that really nothing can be done uh, for the Uyghurs? Because it has so many countries willing to sort of uh, stand by it. And, and how, has it, how has it done that? Uh, beyond the dictatorships who just love dictatoring, um, is it is it they, is it using their economic muscle? Is that why you've got all these African countries refusing to condemn them? Uh, yeah, I mean, I think the 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 willingness to invest uh, or lend money or do a bit of both in a, in a range of kind of developing countries uh, is is notable. And so you see, you know, big ports that will be built in in an African country that that are or railway these huge capital intensive projects which perhaps 20 30 years ago you would have had the world bank doing that kind of thing and now that's often done by china worth saying it's often done on pretty dastardly sort of credit terms and a lot of these countries end up in in very serious difficulties i mean sri lanka is an interesting case study but i think on the point about the un because this ties into the question of the who the who has criticized very heavily for, for being sort of too pro china uh, on the coronavirus issue. And I think something a lot of people don't really take on board, but I just from my own background as a diplomat, you know, all these international organizations are clearly just made up of the countries that are its members. And a lot of Western countries, and Britain notably, have sort of lost interest a bit in doing the boring work of putting your people in, into these international organizations, doing the lobbying, attending the meetings, you know, tabling papers at different sort of councils and so on. And China has just done that very, very assiduously over years and years and years. And if we suddenly sit up now and we're a bit surprised that China has huge influence over the WHO, we slightly need to ask ourselves, well, what were we doing in the WHO for the last 20 years? Similarly, uh, you know, with, with a lot of the um, 
uh, human human rights council questions and so on. Now, ultimately, it's very unlikely that you're going to get the UN to force China to do anything because the UN can't force any powerful country. Uh, and, and that's probably not the route you, you can do. And I think if you want to have an impact on China, it is going to have to be economic. So it will be to do with targeted sanctions, uh, possibly, you know, sanctions which target members of the leadership and their assets overseas and so on. And we know that pressure from Trump influenced the UK's uh, U-turn on Huawei and Secretary of State Mike Pompeo is is very chuffed with it. Um, do you think it's the right thing to do anyway with or or was it something that wouldn't have happened if we had, uh, you know, a different um, president in the White House? Yeah, well, let's not forget, this is about the only bipartisan issue left in America, the China issue. You know, I don't think Joe Biden would have any different policy, except that he would express it in a less offensive manner. Um, So, yeah, I I don't think it it would make a difference. But the question is, is it the right thing to do? I mean, the... uh, there's there's something here in, in, in the UK called the Huawei Cybersecurity Evaluation Centre, which is this sort of odd thing that was set up by the government because of the worries about the risk of putting uh, Huawei kit into the networks. And it's, it's this sort of hybrid between GCHQ and Huawei, and they just sort of test all of Huawei's equipment. And it's interesting because they publish an annual report. I don't think anyone ever reads it, but just to save all the listeners the trouble, I did do that. And um, what, what you find with the most recent report is that these technical evaluators, they've identified significant technical problems with Huawei Kit. They said there's significantly increased risks introducing into the networks. And they've said that Huawei basically isn't doing anything about it in spite of being, you know, required to do so. And and the kind of the, the, the conclusion that they drew, and remember that they drew this conclusion back in the time when the government was still plowing ahead with Huawei. The conclusion they drew was that uh, y- they basically can't really provide assurance that they'd be able to manage the risks of having Huawei. So the point I'm making here is that we've always known that Huawei was a big risk. And up until a few weeks ago, we decided we were happy to take that risk, ultimately because of various promises the government had made on, you know, super fast broadband and so on. Um, But, you know, the risk was always there, was clearly identified. And I think it's it's the right choice that we've made. And when when we think about like the US... I think like discussing all of this it, it like to what extent is Britain you know doing you know taking action against China as part of a noble liberal crusade against like the authoritarianism of the CCP and how they're they're treating some of the minority groups or are we just really being sucked into this Trump anti-China power play because we now have so little power of our own um and and I agree with with Arthur I think it's highly unlikely that that policy would change under a Biden administration but where are we where are we going with it all like what what is the future that we're creating in this world because are we now just part of like a new cold war between China and the West um and like you know at the top of the show you know concerned about China but is there a potentially bigger threat coming from a new cold war between the USA and China that has the potential to become really quite hot and yes we've chosen the USA and you know other European countries are going to have to to choose sides too but um yeah it's it's really quite concerning you know at a at a a sort of geopolitical level that that we sort of seem to be dividing the world so rapidly. Ian, if Britain is happy to accuse China of electronic espionage, ethnic cleansing and political repression, all of which it is literally doing, does that mean a decision has been made not to prioritise trade deals? Because Cameron and Osborne, um, they soft-pedalled mention of human rights abuses, they sucked mm-hmm. up to China um, quite extravagantly. 
Um, you know, because they they saw sort of good, you know, business deals, and and Britain obviously wants trade deals with 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 everybody. You know, p- post Brexit. So, what do you think the kind of the, the the calculus is there that you know it doesn't it doesn't matter if you offend the world's uh, second largest economy, or are they just incredibly moral people? <laughs> I mean, I think that they're being partly dragged into this by a combina- a weird combination of um, Washington and their own backbenchers. Now, Washington, it's absolutely true. It's a continuation of pre-existing sort of US policy. But Trump has been much more aggressive um, towards China than his predecessors. Um, and the backbenchers, most Tory backbenchers are looking for something to do after Brexit for a great mission. And they think they found it in standing up to China. Um, the reality in terms of trade is that the kind of tensions that we're talking about between the US and China are playing out in trade quite heavily. And for sort of weird reasons, I mean, on the on, on in one sense, you know, it's completely unreasonable, the US's complaints. I mean, partly because p- part of Trump's complaints around China, which he's had for a long time, and really since the decline of sort of the automobile industry in the US in the 80s, um, are partly racial, you know, that the, the standard thing with him that, that you know racism never quite goes away and also partly a fundamental misunderstanding where he thinks you know having a trade deficit with a country means that you're losing when in fact really what it means especially in this context is just that you want to buy their stuff i mean it's no more of a problem than when i go to the pub and buy a pint i mean i win because i get the pint and american consumers win because they get lots of sort of decent manufacturing products however there are areas where um actually the u.s complaints against china are completely reasonable, um, especially on subsidies and intellectual property. You know, subsidies, you know, where basically you have a country essentially allowing its sectors to make a loss in order to unfairly outcompete people in the international stage. I mean, uh, China does that an awful lot by state-owned enterprises, um, which tend to make sort of, sort of basic primary products at a loss. So, for instance, they do that with energy and they do it um, with hot rolled steel, which is what goes into making all other steel products. And that acts as a, as a kind of downstream subsidy. So, you know, that entity can make a loss. It turns out cheap product and uh, China get. I keep on nearly saying Russia, which is quite revealing. And China gets a, an unfair advantage. They do the same with, um, with intellectual property. So basically, like when you invest as a sort of foreigner into China, um, there's sort of three categories. Like at the bottom end, there's stuff that is of no security concern, things like toothpaste or something, and you can do whatever you like there. At the top end, there's the stuff that's of such high security concern, you just can't invest, things like AI or autonomous cars. And in the middle, you get things where you can set up, but it's got to be a joint venture. And the joint venture means you've got to have a Chinese partner. The Chinese partner has to be in the majority. And that essentially means that you're handing over all your intellectual property to the Chinese. And on that basis, America's long had a problem with the Chinese on those two issues. And Trump you know, is pursuing it in a more vindictive, catastrophic, chaotic, um, and racist way. But it's still a continuation. And that is dragging the two sides apart. My guess is the Brits look at it and go, well, we want the deal with Washington, right? We want the deal with the US. That's where that's where it lies. So of those two great big towering giants, we go towards the American one. Though, of course, today we've had the headline that, that the government doesn't expect to be able to sign a, a US trade deal by the end of this year now, um, saying that coronavirus has screwed the timetable up. But apparently it doesn't matter that the coronavirus screwed the timetable up on our EU trade deal, but I'll let listeners draw their own conclusions about that. I'll a quick one to finish off. Um, you've helped put together a report that uh, investigates China um, attempts to recruit useful idiots uh, among the elite in this country. Um, how successful have they been? Um, well, I think, um, you know, just if you if you look at particularly 
sort of the House of Lords, which again, you know, came up in the context of the Russia report. The the regulation there of peers' activities, well, there is basically no regulation. And so you end up with a situation where uh, it's possible for someone to have a very extensive series of business interests, which will be barely disclosed, uh, or for someone to, you know, perhaps appear as a guest speaker at a Chinese embassy event and, you know, condemn the Hong Kong protests and sort of not really get noticed because, you know, the ministers who are in the House of Lords, are they really government ministers? You know, there's all kinds of oddities about about that chamber. And I think it, it provides a very kind of fertile hunting ground for all kinds of authoritarian states. And, you know, mm. I think, you know, we've been looking at China and Russia a lot, but I think, you know, there are, there are many others. The Gulf countries have been doing this for years. They're just extremely mm. good at, you know, sp- splashing the cash around a bit and, and, and getting the results they need. Now, the EU has finally agreed to a 750 billion euro bailout for member states. In a last minute decision that caused me to be bumped from the radio, but I'm not bitter. Tours concluded on Tuesday at 5.30am Belgian time, which is the time in any party where the arguments end and everyone goes home. Dutch President Mark Rutte of the very sensibly named Frugal Camp in the EU27 has said the latest round of talks to agree a coronavirus bailout left many countries grumpy with the results. Uh, Ian, these were quite acrimonious talks between the grumpy northern countries, uh, the harder hit Mediterranean states and the increasingly undemocratic horror shows, Hungary and Poland. Is this the... Is that their official name within the EU? I believe. <laughs> over here. Uh, over here. There were a little, little sign saying horror show. Um, is that the shape of Europe now? I mean, is those the kind of the three, uh, the three strands of the EU 27? No, not really, because... Um... Something I think quite remarkable has happened with with Merkel and Macron, and like I've spent quite a lot of time, funny enough, sort of slagging them off, really, um, for a lack of vision and a lack of confidence, and and not doing, especially not showing the solidarity within the EU that you need to be able to demonstrate if it's going to survive. And I think at the moment that has changed, and that really changed because Macron got on board with the idea of euro bonds. I'm going to call them euro bonds. I refuse to call them COVID bonds because it's very very bad branding. Um, and that, I think, spooked Merkel. And Merkel now is adopting positions. I mean, I'm astonished and so impressed to see her adopt them. So they're pushing ahead. I mean, there's no, we can't underestimate what, what is happening. I think it is genuinely remarkable and genuinely incredibly heartening. You are looking at like large scale, Europe wide borrowing on capital markets, where you're going to transfer that money to the countries that are worst hit by the pandemic. Now, that is proper solidarity. That's the kind of thing we've been calling for for a long time that a few months ago, I didn't think there was a fucking hope in hell that they were going to do that, just sort of making the same mistakes over and over again. Now, they're not doing it. They've, they've, the fruit, and, and to be honest, in that context, I'm sort of more sympathetic to the, to the, to the frugal guys <laughs> because, you know, once you're doing that, you do want people to be going, okay, well, now let's make sure, you know, everyone's spending is not completely out of control. But you are providing, you know, for, for Italy's going to get 200 billion out of this. So in Italy, where you've got pronounced Euroscepticism, you've got a really strong nationalist presence, they're completely, finally wrong-footed by this, putting out statements ahead of it, saying it's, it's all gone wrong, it's not enough. Whereas, in fact, the prime minister is coming back with something solid, something seriously impressive. 
So, despite, I mean, there's lots of problems there. There's lots of little niggly areas that could turn into issues, especially at the council where there's a, there's a potential to delay payment on the basis of certain tests. But ultimately, it's fucking impressive stuff. And it's happening because of uh, Merkel and Macron. I do love the euphemism of frugal. It's like you sort of go, Jeff's a bit frugal down the pub, isn't he? <laughs> How was your date with that guy? <laughs> wow, he was a little bit frugal. Frugal. <laughs> frugal when it came to starters. Um, now, Rutte appears to be acting tough to placate sort of Dutch Eurosceptics. Um, and Macron has accused the Dutch of taking Britain's place as the EU's biggest obstructionists. Um, is that fair to them and indeed to us? Because we set a very high bar. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, sort of. I mean, they are that you can see them starting to maneuver according to our absence, right? Like someone had to, the, the Brits you know, took that position and then also were very happy to take all the flack for it because it played well back home, basically. And I, like, I just have visions of like the Dutch and the Danish and the others just going, oh, for sake, like we've got to be bad cop now. You yeah. Know, yeah. Bloody Brits, like why have we got to do it? Yeah, they, exactly. they loved us doing it. And genuinely, by the way, like I remember doing, you know, like the Brexit period, like you, the Swedes would say that shit. They'd be like, fucking hell, there's no one to hide behind now. We actually have to say, we actually have to say what, what we, we think, think about this yeah. stuff yeah, in public. And and so that happened. And then at the same time as well, Merkel started drifting. I mean, they, they thought that they would have Merkel on side for this sort of thing. And at the moment, she's drifted off towards the Macron position on, on things like bonds. So on that basis, they're pretty exposed and they're having to stand up for themselves on that account. I mean, this is positions these guys would have held anyway, but it's just, it's more public, it's more pronounced. They're having to stand up and really adopt it in a way they just hadn't had to before. Naomi, do you think it's a blessing? I was going to say in disguise, but just no disguise at all. Just a blessing uh, for Europe that we didn't extend and that we, we aren't still members at this point. Would we have been uh, more hindrance than help? I mean, I think in terms of decision making, if we're honest, things would have would have probably been slower uh, if we'd still been there. Um, and like I said, like you know, the Dutch are obviously you know having to play that bad cop role that that we previously did. Um, but we, look, we all work best when we work with Europe and, and vice versa, and, and we all bring different things to the table. And we were this brilliant liberalising voice within the European Union that that you know isn't there in such. Strong terms now, uh, and you know I just commend them in the same way that 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 Ian's just said. You know this is multilateralism, um, consensus building, grown up politics in action that is helping countries. And and you know against the odds, against all of the eurosceptical critics that said that they wouldn't be able to reach um, agreement on it, and that they have. And, and fair play to them. And you know remain very gutted for us that that we're not part of that. And where's the money going? So um, alongside this uh, 1.1 trillion, which is the new multilateral financial framework, um, or you know, the EU budget, as, as it's sort of more commonly known as, they're going to raise this 750 billion of euros in the financial markets. And about half of that's going to be distributed as COVID recovery fund grants uh, to the countries that, that most need to help and some as loans, um, you know, and you'll have to, the, each country will have to produce its plan, its recovery plan in order to get that. Um, and then the rest uh, goes to boosting existing programs such as uh, the Horizon Research Programme, which is this pan-European research programme, which the UK should definitely still try to retain access to, I hasten to add. Um, at Best for Britain, we polled it this week, and 66% of voters want us to retain access, including a majority of Conservative and Leave voters. Uh, and I think, you know, being in a pandemic where we all now appreciate scientists and the research that they do far more, I think that's probably what's driven that public opinion. Arthur, one of the uh, lines in the Russia report was about why the 
um, the response to the Salisbury poisonings was successful because it was multilateral. It wasn't Britain alone. There was a mass expulsion of, of diplomats. Um, so we discussed Britain's relationship with Russia and China. Where's, how sort of uh, firm is the EU at the moment? Well, it's, I think it's a very mixed picture and, and obviously not helped by the economic fragility of, of the current situation. I mean, you've had over the years uh, very varied sort of responses, to particularly to Russia uh, with the countries closest and historically, you know, having been under Russia's thumb, uh, having taken a very different line to, to sort of France, Germany and the UK. More recently, I mean, it's interesting, you know, Macron seems to be prepared to sort of try to work with Russia perhaps on certain issues, uh, you know, whether or not that will that will end up proving a sort of impossible mission, I, I suspect it might do. Um, I, I think, though, you know, in a way, one of the, coming back to these discussions we had earlier, you know, that a country such as Britain can't navigate these huge global powers and, and their disputes on its own. Without the, the heft of the EU, obviously, we just end up uh, falling into the slipstream of the US. The EU can, the EU can, as an economic bloc, stand up to China, particularly, uh, if it chooses to. Now, it doesn't have very good structures to enable it to do that, but these structures are developing gradually. Uh, and and the, the most recent financials um, you know, bailout, in a way, is, is an example of that, effectively, a very, very sort of slow kind of state formation unfolding. I, I suppose I haven't really given an answer, but I think what we're going to see is if you get leaders of the sort of credibility of Macron and, and Merkel particularly, you, you may see a sort of serious policy on, on China. But, but without that kind of leadership, I think it will drift, um, you know, hither and thither, basically. And, and finally, some of the strongest resistance to the plan, uh, apart from the frugal nations, came from Hungary and Poland, um, where Duda was re-elected last week. If these countries are going to be both obstructive and undemocratic, what use are they to the EU? Is the EU going to, you know, is going to sort of fight to keep them? Well, it's a very good question because basically, I mean, neither of those countries really should continue to be a member of the EU on the basis of the EU's own rules in terms of rule of law, you know, and respect for, for democratic systems. Uh, however, I can't foresee any circumstances in which they'll be kicked out. It's sort of you have this problem child, you know, I think, partic- you know, with Hungary particularly, it's a pretty small country. It's it's very depressing to see what is happening there, if you're a, particularly if you're a Hungarian. Uh, but it doesn't have a huge influence on the rest of the EU. I think Poland is markedly different. And of course, it's very disappointing. You know, it was a, it was a close run thing with the most recent presidential election. Uh, you know, Poland does have the capacity to undermine the integrity of the EU and, and its values. Uh, and ultimately, I think, again, it takes leadership and people willing to apply quite severe sanctions. There was, um, I mean, they did actually make a move there to, for some sort of conditionality on funding to do with the rule of law. But it was sort of done in this way with extremely mercurial language, which all the sort of legal EU people I know are just looking at being like, I don't know what the fuck that means in practice. And over the next sort of year, I think we're going to discover what it means. It could mean absolutely fuck all. And, you know, Hungary and Poland have got away with it. Or it could mean, and I think probably the majority of legal opinion I've seen is just about on this side right now, 
although it's partly a political assessment, that actually they might be really intending on on seeing that shit through and making that funding conditional on rule of law. If so, that could be the start of the EU finally grappling with this issue. But you'd have to be a very optimistic person to, to be too hopeful about that, given their track record so far. Hello, it's Andrew Harrison, the producer here. If you like Romaniacs, you will love The Bunker. Every Wednesday, the Romaniacs regulars plus new guests get together for a no-holds-barred political roundtable about anything and everything except Brexit. There's always opportunity and it's always a good time to start the right business. It is a season of utter insanity and lunacy in the United States. On Mondays, Tuesdays, Thursdays and Fridays, there's The Bunker Daily with one-to-ones and explainers on everything from the economy to the arts, culture and even food. Italians are extravagant about food but never wasteful. That's what I'm like. We have to create a kinder, gentler world where everyone has the basic decencies of life. That's The Bunker with all your favourites from Romaniacs and more. Get it wherever you get your podcasts. Now it's time for To The Barricade. One of our regulars picks a cause close to their heart for listeners to investigate. This week, Arthur Snell mans them for the first time. Thanks very much. Um, and, you know, it, it feels a daunting prospect because there are so many bloody awful things happening that, you know, where do you start? <laughs> um, but I, I, I actually, um, I think in a way, a lot of the questions that we find ourselves talking about come back to what is this very, very unhealthy rise of uh, sort of authoritarian nationalism and populism. Now, some people call it fascism, and, and that's a perfectly uh, decent description to apply to it. And obviously, you know, we've seen versions of it in this country. We've seen it very strongly in the US. We've seen it in Brazil in a different form. It's it's there in China. It's there in India with the sort of rise of Hindu nationalism. And actually, when you start looking uh, across the world, it's it's rather depressing to find just how many countries now live under governments that could be accurately described as sort of authoritarian nationalist. Um so what to do about it? I mean, uh, what, what can we as sort of individual citizens, um, how can we make a difference? It's very difficult, but I think there are things we can do. I mean, uh, one of the best things you could probably do is support Naomi's wonderful organisation, Best for Britain. Um, and But there are other organisations. I didn't even have to pay you for that. You didn't. Thank no, you very, I, very I, much. I'm, I'm, uh, I'm completely, uh, you know, un, un, untied there. But um, but also, yeah, you know, there's Hope Not Hate, which is another fantastic organization that does work uh, here mm-hmm. against fascism. Mm-hmm. But also, you know, there are organizations, you know, we, we touched on Hungary earlier, um, that there are organizations that are, that are struggling in that very, very hostile environment. There's something called Unhacked Democracy, which is worth taking a look at if, if, if Hungary takes your interest. And, you know, further afield, there are organizations that are trying to protect the secular ideals of India against this assault of Hindu nationalism. There are liberals holding out in Brazil. And I think, you know, ultimately, this is a global struggle. And I don't know how it's going to end. I don't know how my children, you know, what world they're going to grow up in. But I feel very strongly that I think a lot of us in this country feel a bit dispirited at the end of the Brexit struggle. Uh, Well, you know, the struggle's not over. We've got to keep fighting. and, And we should find those organizations that are still looking at these issues and they need our support and we should uh, support them in what ways we can. Thanks, Arthur. You're very good at this. <laughs> I feel stirred. Oh, you literally ready to man the fucking barricades. Brilliant. Brilliant. <laughs>
Finally, Parliament voted against giving itself powers of oversight on new trade deals. Tory rebels tried to bring in an amendment to that effect to the Brexit trade bill, but it was defeated by 263 votes to 326. Labour's shadow international trade minister Bill Esterson said this would leave the NHS wide open to pharmaceutical giants and undermine farmers and consumers. Ian, this bill went through Parliament before, but it was thoroughly amended. Now it's back in pretty much its original form. Um, does this just show the kind of parliament we're dealing with, a fairly uh, impotent one in this term? Because we have talked about we have talked about resistance from the Tory backbenchers, but and yet, yeah, yeah, it's just that they won't, they're not going to resist on Brexit stuff. Um, but I, I think they will on on all sorts of other matters. I'm kind of impressed. I mean, I mean, I'm actually impressed by how sort of, how willing to rebel these new MPs. Usually, when you become an MP, especially with part of big majority, you you kind of you keep keep yourself a bit dry and you know because you're hoping for a ministerial i don't see much of that they seem pretty um rambunctious but not on fucking brexit issues although there was you know a minor attempt it didn't get anywhere um and and it's a bit mad that it doesn't to be honest because you know one of the things you would always hear when you talk to like sort of trade negotiators um say like trying to stand up to the americans pretty fucking hard anyway was you know the american negotiator would always wet i mean it's it's super different in um in the u.s i mean in in the u.s the, the senate can actually amend trade agreements um it has quite a lot it has a huge amount of power actually comparatively and this is the general trend in in sort of international sort of trade is that is actually the same with the eu parliament um is actually to give them much more say over it um and they would have this sort of tactic where you can you can just say to your negotiating partner when they're saying something to you like oh, i don't know like if it's washington saying to us you know you've got to hand over all your agricultural standards and we'll just be able to send you whatever the fuck we like well you can say you know what i would love to mate but the thing is i can't get that past parliament back home so actually having that scrutiny function isn't just important on a democratic level and it's also it, it can actually assist in your posture during the negotiation, it helps you negotiate. But of course, none of that is really there. You just have this constant sense that you've had from sort of Brexit governments, whether it's Theresa May's or it's Boris Johnson, just trying to expand the power of the executive, you know, talking about the will of the people, but ultimately just trying to expand the power of the executive, trying to get rid of any kind of scrutiny function, any kind of separation of power, parliament, the courts, whatever that can get in your way. And, and that's what's played out here. Really. It's barely worth noting the uh, hypocrisy uh, four years on about how much, <laughs> how much they, they <laughs> pretended how to care about. To even say it? <laughs> it's like, oh, but they said they cared about parliamentary sovereignty. And it's like, <laughs> yeah, no, they, they, they lied. Um, we're told that the consumer will decide in these trade, you know, to kind of appease people about this kind of some of these uh, trade deals. Do you have faith that the consumer will be given enough information to decide? Um, no, no, I don't at all. And, and you, you think about it, you don't, right? You, I mean, there's certain areas of food buying where you, you're given a fair amount of information, although you don't really know what it means. You know, I mean, when you you... you you work with a certain level of automaticity when you're going through a supermarket. So you see, you know, you've got in your head, I'm the kind of person that buys free range eggs. And that decision was in your mind, you know, probably like what, 20 years ago, right? Where you thought I care about chickens. And then you'll see a video of what lots of free range, you know, what the conditions are, the producers. And you're like, well, fucking hell, that wasn't what I was, you know, in my head, that was the beautiful open fields, you know, the pecking at the thing. With the, it's not what you get. 
So actually, even in that capacity where you're given a fair amount of information, you, you generally, you know, you're, you're operating quite considerably in the dark. Then and when remember, it comes- and remember, the horse meat scandal isn't even that long ago. You know, even when you've got yeah. some sort of labeling yeah. that maybe you don't quite understand the definition of around what free range actually means is just a sliver of light for the chickens as opposed to total darkness. But, but mm-hmm. you know, there are still ways that your food gets corrupted and, and you're blind on it. Like you just have no way of knowing it. Yeah, exactly. And then and well, and then think about where you are when you're in a restaurant, right? Like when you're in a restaurant, what the fucking what do you fucking know about how this stuff gets produced? I mean, in some kind of really quite nice, you know, in a nice decent state restaurant, you might get some information about the conditions. And in some parts of, you know, horrible Islington and Remainer London, you will find places that, you know, sell themselves as a restaurant on the basis of that, but it's pretty fucking rare. So this is the thing of let the consumer decide. I mean, I'm afraid I have very little confidence that they'll be given the kind of information upon which they do it. And even where there is some information there, I think that most of the time it's quite easy to hack the way that consumers think that they'll make that judgment once. They will then just slot into the kind of thing that they do all the time and you can degrade the standards underneath whatever branding it is that you've slapped on the packet. Naomi, uh, MPs also voted against an amendment to protect the NHS from trade deals that transfer control outside the UK. Can you decode this? Because sometimes what happens when there's when there's something quite uh, out, apparently outrageous, it turns out to be a kind of a wrecking bill or a wrecking amendment, um, mm. which is uh, which it doesn't mean that much, but it makes the it makes the government look bad. So, what's the kind of substance of this vote? I mean, I think I think the substance of it is that the the Tories are desperately worried about making sure they get a, a trade deal with the US, and and we've talked about this, you know, many times on all of our podcasts that <clears throat> the UK doesn't actually have much to offer a US trade deal unless mm. uh, the NHS is on the table, uh, and in particular uh, drugs, um, and uh, it, to be honest, it's, it's it's pretty worrying that at a time when you know we're more reliant than we ever ever have been on the NHS that the government has, you know, pushed through this trade bill that has very, very little protection for our treasured NHS. I mean, we've heard it time and again out of Johnson's mouth. It's not on the table. It's not on the table. But this is the man so famous for U-turns that that we really can't believe any of that. And so now we're in a situation where we're at risk of higher drug prices, you know, private companies being able to sue the government if it tries to limit their ability to profit from our healthcare. Um, And, you know, worse still, we're not going to have any any say over it because of the reasons that... that, uh, Ian outlined uh, at the top that now there is no parliamentary scrutiny or sign off on our trade deals, unlike every other country or block that we will be aiming to sign trade deals with. Um, so it, it, it is worrying. I don't think it was a wrecking moment. I do think it was genuinely trying to to hold the government to account on their promise that the NHS wouldn't be on the table. Uh, and I think you know you have to you have to take them by their actions, mm. not their words. And they've chosen not to not to protect the NHS. So I think we have to brace ourselves for that now. Finally, Arthur, there's an exciting job going. Chief Exec at UK Security Vetting Services. Security Vetting is moving from the MOD to the Cabinet Office. Uh, they want a new CEO for 115 grand a year to offer inspiring and engaging leadership. And they'll be reporting to who's behind the door. It's Dominic Cummings. Um, what is he up to uh, by moving um, by moving this from one part of the government to the other? Yeah, this is interesting. I, I think whilst I, I'm very ready to believe that this is Dominic Cummings trying to take over the world, I think this is a bit more like, uh, when Steve Hilton, who was, you know, David Cameron's sort of uh, kind of pound shop Dominic Cummings, uh, he, he decided he was going to have a big initiative to destroy red tape. And he was going to, you know, get rid of all regulations on everything. 
Uh, and it turned out that all the regulations were there for quite a good reason. So we ended up focusing on, I think, the, the label on your sofa that tells you not to set fire to the sofa. And that was, you know, that was his big strike for uh, deregulation. And I suspect with Cummings, he's desperate to find things that he can break and remake. Uh, but most of the big things are rather too complicated. And there's quite a lot of people in the way telling him he can't do that. So he's picked a really pettifogging, frankly, unimportant issue, uh, which is security vetting. Now, let, let me let me be clear. I'm not saying that it's not important how you vet people. But ultimately, vetting, I mean, having been through the process, it's there's not many ways you can do it. You, you just have to interview <laughs> the people. You have to find a bit out about them. You have to get them to do financial disclosure and, you know, make sure they don't have a gambling problem or whatever. And and then you take a bit of a punt because ultimately the government is never going to have the resources to find out if you're leading a secret double life and, you're, you know, you're hugely at risk from blackmail. So I suspect that whilst, you know, some of this is is, a, is an unhealthy sign of Cummings trying to sort of put a lot of power towards himself, I think it's probably more he's got a bee in his bonnet about vetting. And, it, you know, it's it's usually very slow. Lots of people get held up in their jobs waiting for their vetting clearance to come through. And he probably thinks that, you know, he's going to transform Whitehall, you know, one step at a time. And this is the first step. Well, you know, good luck, I say. So who's your money on? Is it uh, an 18-year-old cyber genius hacker who loves the art of war or Chris Grayling? Well, you know, I mean, I, I think railing would be great for, great for the job. I mean, all I can say is from from uh, the times where, when I, I went through the vetting process, that most of the people who actually do it are retired coppers and they come around to your house and they ask you these really weird questions that sort of seem to betray quite a lot of prejudice and things like, are you gay? So, well, no, I'm not, but I, it wouldn't be a problem if I was. No, it wouldn't be a problem, but are you gay? <laughs> <laughs> you go around, you go around four times, and then you get to stage and say, "Listen, okay, if if it makes it easier, I'll tell you I'm gay, but I really don't care either way." And so, uh, so I think Roland would really fit in with that crowd. So, I, I, yeah, I hope, he, I hope he gets the job. They sound pretty bi curious to me. <laughs> the future of Britain's security is just Chris Galing asking Chris Galing asking people if they're gay. <laughs> Amazing. We've reached the end of the show. The Brexit bridge is taking a break this week as we investigate allegations of Russian interference in the engineering process. So thanks to Naomi. Thank you. Ian. Thanks, man. And Arthur. Thank you. Now for our theme song, Corner Shop's Demon is a Monster, and a thanks to our latest Patreon backers. Hello, and a massive thank you from me to Alistair Finlay, Robbie Stamp, Tom Pine, Andrew Glover, and Simon Bowker. Spasiba from me to Chris Jobling, Daniel Dudley, Stephen Herring, Odette Dunkley, and Yana Toon. Hello, and welcome to Romaniacs from me to Matthew Last, Sarah Pelton, Kevin Marsh, Ali McKinley, and Ian Bois. And finally, thanks from me to Anna Mervang, John Pendleton, Eves, John Gray, presumably not the gloomy SES John Gray, and Craig Leonard. Take care, watch out for Compromat, and we'll see you next week. Romaniacs was presented by Dorian Linsky with Arthur Snell, Ian Dunt, and Naomi Smith. Audio production and scripting was by me, Alex Reese. The producer was Andrew Harrison. The assistant producer was Jacob Archbold. And Romaniacs is a Podmasters production. Thank you.
and a massive thank you from me to Alistair Finley, Robbie Stamp, Tom Pine, Andrew Glover, and Simon Bowkett. Boom! Oh my God, I cannot believe it. it well done. That fucking, I've been fucking zoned in waiting for that show. I was just like, I'm fucking doing it today. I'm doing it. And, and I did you it. You did it. You did it. <laughs> I did it. That was like when, uh, when Donald Trump successfully recognized an elephant. Ha 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 